Spread Great Ideas is meant to increase the signal in a world awash in noise. I'm your curator and host, Brian David Crane, and it is my quest to share the learnings of the world's most interesting people, the disruptors, the outliers, the libertines, and those who've been unconventionally successful so that we can become a little bit wiser together. Please welcome Mark Pulliam, an award-winning lawyer, writer, and activist living in East Tennessee. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, The Federalist, and many other publications. He writes regularly at Misrule of Law and is also a contributing editor at Law and Liberty. As a political refugee from Blue Austin, Texas, today he's joining me to discuss the ups and downs of building a grassroots conservative movement as a local activist in a supposedly quote-unquote friendly area. After all, the part of East Tennessee in which he lives, Blount County, voted by a 71% to 27% margin in favor of Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Yet in building this grassroots movement, which you'd think would be welcomed by the political establishment that purports to also be conservative, he has run into his local version of The Swamp, a long-standing good old boy network filled with rhinos that demonstrates the same clannish behavior which the original Scotch-Irish settlers of East Tennessee brought with them. Is it possible for an outsider to inject a sense of urgency into the local populace and wake them from their slumber in order to defend their values and way of life from local leaders who say one thing and do another? Let's find out. Mark, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure to be here. What okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, excellent. I thought there was a, a, a blurb there with the audio. Um, yeah, so it, do you want to just in, briefly describe how you wound up in East Tennessee, um, you and your wife? How, what's, what, what, how, how did you get there? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't want people to think that uh, I'm all that remarkable. I'm, I don't consider myself a political activist and what I'm doing here in East Tennessee is not, you know, trying to build a grassroots movement per se. I feel like I'm a pretty ordinary boomer, albeit a opinionated, you know, conservative-minded boomer. And what I'm doing here isn't really any different than I've done any other place I've lived. You know, when I lived in Los Angeles or San Diego or Austin, Texas, you stay informed. You express your opinions. It used to be uh, somebody with opinions would express them by writing letters to the editor of the local newspaper. Unfortunately, these days, newspapers are dying. People don't read them. And technology has moved in a different direction. If you have opinions you want to express, you, you start blogging. You write for some platform. Uh, and that's what I, you, know, you get on Twitter or X. And, and I have adapted to some of those technologies, but I started out as just a guy who used to write op-eds for the local newspaper, or write letters to the editor, et cetera. And I think I've just sort of carried that on. And now that I've retired from practicing law, I have more time on my hands. And I kind of uh, decided about 10 years ago to make writing a second career. And so I started, you know, developing uh, more platforms, digital platforms, uh, writing for more, a greater variety of publications, started my own blog, Misrule of Law. And so to answer your questions, what brought us to East Tennessee? You know, I grew up on the East Coast. I'm from Maryland originally. 
and um, had uh, practiced law in Southern California. And after I retired in 2010 and had the opportunity to relocate, I decided to get out of Dodge. Things were just uh, becoming, in my judgment, you know, too liberal, too multicultural. And so I moved back to Texas, where Rick Perry was still governor. And unfortunately, the place in Texas I picked was Austin, where I had gone to law school. And in the seven years that I lived there, Austin went from being kind of a funky, fun college town to being uh, the epicenter of this democratic socialist revolution, where they, you know, curb the the police and and unleashed the homeless, and it it really became pretty chaotic. And so, my wife and I decided, you know, this isn't where we wanted to spend the rest of our lives. And so we looked all around the country, uh, you know, literally from uh, 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 Alaska to uh, you know Arkansas to uh, a bunch of places, you know, Utah. And we were drawn to East Tennessee because it's so beautiful, but mostly because it was, you know, normal. It had not been influenced by these, you know, sort of crazy uh, events that had uh, really developed on the coasts and in the major cities. And, you know, there's plenty of water, plenty of electricity, uh, you know, temperate uh, four season climate, et cetera, you know, no state income tax. and so. We moved here, you know, one of the things we looked at was how do people vote? And uh, we saw that people here voted, you know, very conservatively. And so we thought, okay, this is a place we could move to that's not going to change under our feet like Southern California had changed under my feet in the 30 years that I lived there, going from Reagan country to Gavin Newsom country. And same thing in, in Austin, Texas. And uh, and so once we got here, uh, we realized that we weren't, you know, Blunt County, Tennessee is not like living in Southern California in 1995 or 1990. It, you know, it's a different place. And I'd never lived in a small town before. And so it has taken, I guess, four years for us to really figure out how different it is and to, uh, kind of understand those differences and to, uh, you know, learn to, to deal with them. Okay. Got it. Thank you. And so once you got your feet underneath you and you learned the differences, what then led you into setting up the Blount County Conservative Coalition? Well, so one of the things that, you know, I had been involved in in Southern California and then also in Texas was Republican politics. And you know, because every place I've ever lived, if you were a conservative person, you got involved in Republican politics. So you could hang out with people who shared your, you know, your values and your your attitudes. And, you know, and that the purpose of the Republican Party was that you could work together to, you know, influence you know, politics, you know, candidates, uh, platforms, et cetera. So we got here and the first thing we did was, you know, figure out, okay, so where are all of the conservative activists, you know, and where's the Republican Party? Because we want to get involved. And, uh, you know, and we had been involved in a a significant way in Texas. We were delegates to the state Republican convention 
and had been involved in some you know, activist groups, both within and without the you know, auspices of the Republican Party. And we got here and, you know, it was they either didn't exist or to the, the extent that they appeared to exist, they were moribund. And uh, so we thought, well, they just need, you know, they just need some help. And we thought that surely they would, you know, value our our volunteer efforts and would welcome us with open arms. And it, it turned out that they weren't. And and this took us probably longer than it should have to figure out, just because it was so counterintuitive to you know what we had expected. And what we found is that they were not interested in reviving uh, or um, ex, you know breathing life into the county Republican Party because and uh, you know and this is my you know, this is my opinion that uh, the establishment, the, the Chamber of Commerce, the the prominent businesses, the longstanding uh, families that have power and influence in Blount County wanted to preserve that. And that if you had a grassroots, a dynamic grassroots organization, such as a local Republican Party, that was registering voters and getting out the vote and recruiting candidates and so forth, that that influence would encroach upon their influence. And they felt like we have a monopoly over this influence. We basically decide who runs, who gets elected, what policies get enacted. And we don't want the people getting in our way. And so they had, over a period of many years, effectively neutered the the Republican Party. It doesn't essentially does nothing. And it, it exists on paper only. And so when I decided, like I said, well, geez, I, I'd like to volunteer. I want to be on your board uh, and so forth. At the end of the day, it, sort of a door was slammed in our face. And um, and so because you know, we had wanted to participate in and become part of the Republican Party. When that avenue was closed to us, we decided, you know, first to create this Facebook page, Blunt County Conservative Sentinel, which now has like over 2,100 followers, and then set up an organization, the Blunt County Conservative Coalition, which started having monthly meetings. And we did that for the better part of three years. Uh, just to try to get the ball rolling with community activism, get people to start paying attention to what was going on, to to get involved and get engaged, and so we did that, and uh, we sort of reached a a point where we're waiting to see if there is enough momentum to form a true grassroots participation, because you know. What my wife and I were doing is basically having these monthly meetings, bring in speakers, and I would you know, talk to the audience. But one person can't change the political direction of a county. It, it requires a movement. It requires broad-based community participation. And I have, over the last four years, sort of become identified, at least in the establishment's mind, as a troublemaker. And so this grassroots coalition, if one is going to 
coalesce, has to have a public face that is not my public face. And so I'm kind of hoping that somebody will step up and, you know, basically pick up the baton and and go with it. Makes sense. And so when you think about your efforts, both at a, let's say, a local level and also your writing efforts, which one do you believe has a bigger impact? Maybe that's not the right word, but which one do you feel like um, that actually that actually drives influence? Right. So like with um, with the monthly meetings, you're able to get these people together. The Facebook page, you're able to spread spread a message locally that is is really kind of Tennessee centric from what I've seen. But like, let's let's assume it's it's local plus statewide. And then you also write for a national audience. So, yeah, is there is there is there a tier? If you think about um, like a lever, which lever are you pulling that actually has the biggest uh, biggest influence? Well, so I'm you know I'm primarily a writer. I'm not somebody that goes around the state giving speeches. I don't do a lot of podcasts. I'll, you know, if somebody asks me, I'll do it, but I don't have a publicist who's out there trying to line up dates. And, and so your, your influence as a writer depends completely on the size of your audience. And so obviously a national publication is going to have a bigger audience than, you know, a Blunt County audience. And, uh, and so, you know, you're also a national audience wants to hear about national things. Uh, they don't want to hear about, you know, what your county mayor is doing or what the library is up to or whatever. So, so I try to, you know, I do devote time to all three levels. So, you know, I, I have a national platform for, you know, sort of national topics. Uh, some of what I have to say is, you know, impactful statewide. So there are, you know, digital platforms, the Tennessee Conservative News, the Tennessee Star. There's radio shows that have a big uh, audience in Nashville, which is sort of our statewide uh, media center for political things. And so I weigh in. And then locally, you know, you, what, what can you do? You, you can uh, you have a Facebook page that people locally can can follow. But that is you know, a relatively small group of people, 2,100 people out of a, you know, county that has a population of 135,000. So in terms of the payoff, you get a bigger payoff for the buck, you know, talking to national or statewide audiences than local. You know, part of what we've done over the last four years is try to show people the way that you can make a difference at the local level. And hopefully people will sort of follow that example. We, you know, we arrived here in late 2019. And since, and, and we were, I wouldn't say the tip of the spear, but, uh, you know, we got here right before COVID. And as a result of COVID and the George Floyd summer, a lot of people all around the country started re-examining do I really want to live in Chicago? Do I really want to live in New Jersey? Do I really want to live in California or wherever? And a lot of people said, no, I don't. You know, I don't feel safe. This is not trending in the right direction. It costs a lot of money to live here. And so there's been quite a few people that we've met who moved to East Tennessee from various 
places in the country for exactly the same reasons that we did. And, you know, these people are referred to and now refer to themselves, ironically, as the transplants. And uh, the transplants, ironically, are much more concerned about current events and, and trends and so forth than, than the natives, because if you've lived in a state that has turned into a state or a city that turned into a hellhole, and then you move to someplace, a sanctuary, a refuge like East Tennessee, you are very motivated to try to keep things, keep those bad things from happening here. And you kind of look at things as the early warning signs and you try to tell your neighbors, be concerned about this. You know, you don't want to be attracting homeless people to your library. You don't want to be, uh, you know, doing tutorials on, you know, uh, how, you know, illegal aliens should get uh, amnesty and so forth, because those things translate into bad results. Well, unless you've seen it happen, a lot of, you know, the locals are kind of skeptical. They say, well, you're just being hysterical about this. And so you do have two camps here. You've got the people that have seen it happen and are seriously motivated to prevent it from happening here. And you have the people who, because they've been insulated from these things, because this isn't, you know, uh, an isolated, somewhat isolated community, you got the Great Smoky Mountains behind you. The the nearest big city is Knoxville, which is not really that big of a city. And it's not anything close to Nashville in terms of its you know, sophistication or its trendiness and whatnot. And so people like to believe, and I don't really blame them, that life has been good here for so long. How could it ever go bad? Well, that's what I thought in sunny San Diego. That's what I thought in Austin, Texas. But lo and behold, these things will happen if you don't resist them. So I do feel sometimes like I'm the local Paul Revere and people basically not really believing that the British are coming. And uh, so I, you know, I kind of devote my time to, you know, national, state and local issues. And, uh, and I, uh, I, you know, for a while there, I was really focusing on the local, was writing for the local paper and so forth. But I kind of decided that uh, I need to make sure that I remain my, you know, that my portfolio remains diversified and that I I don't neglect the national and the state issues as well. Okay. So one of the articles that you shared on your, uh, on the Facebook page or it was on your blog, I don't remember how I found it, but it was from Glenn Reynolds and it was a review of a book from Roger Simon. And he's talking about these transplants that you were referring to. And he said that there was a distinction between the two. There's one group that left California primarily due to congestion and high taxes and settled in places like Idaho and Colorado. And then you have another group that left for ideological reasons. And California is a, um, uh, I'm picking on it to a certain degree, but I think the same would be true for New Jersey or Chicago. Um, they left for ideological reasons and that those the people in that camp, the second camp, are much more like a Paul Revere and that they're much more vigilant about trying to defend where they move to from the influences that they saw take root or the ideas or the um, policies that sort of, quote unquote, ruined where they were coming from. So, and I think that's 
from what I can see with your actions, the local activism, and I use that term broadly, I know you don't identify as an activist, but the local activism is given you a mechanism by which to find your tribe for lack of a better way. So like if you spend a lot of time bemoaning what's happening at the national level, and then you find a couple thousand other people or a couple hundred other people, let's say, but they're also in a similar camp. Hey, we moved here for a similar reason. Hey, we moved here from a similar place. Um, I think it's going to be, yeah, I would, I think you would find that more rewarding than let's call it empty internet calories of somebody liked your, your article in the wall street journal. I don't know if that's true, but like, do you feel that the local activism has, yeah, scratched an itch for you, uh, personally that, uh, you weren't aware of? Well, so when, whenever I get frustrated about, you know, the inability to get, have more traction in Blount County, I, I look at the larger, the state, you know, so I'm a Tennessean. We love Tennessee. Uh, we've met a lot of great people since we've moved here. The book that you referred to that Roger Simon wrote is called American Refugees. And I like refugees a lot more than transplants that, uh, you know, you go down to, you know, Southern South Florida and the most patriotic people down there are Cuban refugees. And, uh, and so that's, I would like to sort of, you know, see myself and, and these other people that we are the, you know, that we are the true patriots who are making our last stand in Tennessee. And Glenn Reynolds' review was, was very uh, insightful. I have a review of the same book coming out in the next issue of the American Conservative. And even though I wrote mine before he wrote his, it, it's going to come out later. Everybody's going to say, well, you're just copying what Glenn Reynolds had to say. But but Roger Simon makes some very good points, and he was a Hollywood scriptwriter. He was, you know, in, he traveled in the East Jewish. He traveled in all these liberal circles in Southern California, and he moved to Tennessee. He didn't move to East Tennessee. He moved to Nashville, but he noticed a lot of the same cultural shock that we noticed when we moved here from Austin to East Tennessee, and. So it makes that made me feel better that this isn't just, you know, just isn't me and it isn't just East Tennessee, that this is something that Tennesseans in general have this reaction to outsiders in general. And so, you know, I shouldn't take it personally and and I don't take it personally. And so one of the themes that that Roger Simon develops in his book is that if you live in a basically been a one party red state. For a long time, where you know uh, we have the Republicans have super majorities in both houses of the General Assembly, we've got you know Republican Attorney General, Republican Governor. That you take, you have no state income tax. You have you know the Republican president carries the state by overwhelming majorities. You sort of uh, people who grew up in that environment sort of become very comfortable. That we don't have to be, you know, at the ramparts every day, you know, scouting for the enemy because we're safe. And it's, you know, the reality is in 2024, nobody is safe. That uh, you know, the world, the, the, certainly the United States, is, is sort of on the cusp of this existential threat. That you know, we could be overrun 
by at any moment by these crazy people who run the, the media and the uh, higher education and all these other influential institutions in the United States. And so if you are a refugee from California or from Austin, Texas, you know that and you really want to, you know, kind of we need to, you know, we need to start signing up voters and we need to do this and we need to do that. And the locals, whether it's in Nashville or whether it's here, they're saying, well, what's wrong? You know, just, you know, chill out. Everything's good. And they have kind of accepted uh, in lieu of conservative Republican leadership the sort of this rhino establishment chamber of commerce leadership without knowing, you know, one from the other. They, they kind of, if you have an R after your name, you're okay. Now, you would think that Donald Trump kind of exposed all of that in 2016 with the whole MAGA agenda and, and uh, revealing that the, the Republican establishment at the national level was full of rhinos that had a globalist uh, agenda. And so, but a lot of people, and you know, people love Donald Trump in Tennessee and particularly in East Tennessee, but what they don't understand is that everything that he was saying about the swamp in Washington, D.C. is also true in state capitals like Nashville and in your local seats of government. And so when you, you know, you call Paul Ryan or these other people rhinos, well, they're not the only people who are rhinos that, you know, you've got statewide elected officials that can be rhinos. You've got people on your county commissions and your city councils that can be rhinos. But people are less willing to make that connection if they went to school with these people, if these people are born and raised in their same community and they sort of trust that, well, I've known this person all my life, you know, how bad can they be? The thing about politics is, you know, if you're liberal or conservative, it doesn't make you a good person or a bad person, but it's your policies and your politics that can be bad. And people on a personal level in a kind of a, a clannish community are less willing to separate personalities from politics. And so if they know you, if you're a trusted neighbor, they basically ignore your politics. And that's a fatal mistake because, you know, uh, you elect somebody, you're not electing them because you like them or because you know them. You're electing them because they're going to vote the right way in the interests of of the public. And yep. so that's where, you know, I arrived here and kind of got frustrated that more people were not, you know, looking at, were not taking the MAGA point of view and applying it consistently to state and local politics. Now, in Tennessee, that's changing. We have, you know, shortly after I arrived, not that I had anything to do with it, but a fellow in Middle Tennessee, Gary Stan, uh, Gary Humble, formed a group, Tennessee Stands, and, uh, you know, made a big pushback against the, the COVID response. They, you know, objecting to emergency powers that state officials had either exercised or allowed local people to exercise. And then a media, a conservative media platform got started in uh, East Tennessee down in Chattanooga, Tennessee Conservative News. And so we have now fresh voices 
not just my voice. My voice is, is pretty faint in comparison to a Tennessee stands and Tennessee conservative news, but it's all part of the same push to get Tennesseans to wake up, recognize that politics has to be taken seriously. Citizenship is something that requires effort, requires initiative, uh, and you have to be informed and you have to be engaged. And I think we are moving in that direction. So I, um, you know, I, I, I'm heartened that I may have played a small role in that, at least at the local level. But that movement is moving forward in Tennessee, and hopefully it will someday catch up to, you know, the MAGA attitude nationwide. And what do you see as as far as if someone's listening to this, how to <clears throat> yeah, how to affect change? And what I mean by that is that is it through the like through pr- the the primary system as far as like okay cool this person we've identified as a rhino for lack of a better way to put it or they don't they, you know they they win the popularity contest but they certainly don't win on principles um, and so then you want to get a primary challenge to them or is it like in your case where you you attempt to get on the uh, I think it was the state election commission for the Republican Party in order to I assume help vet or decide which candidates would actually be on the Republican ticket? Like what, like how, how, what, what's the line of attack effectively? Well, you know, so we live in a, basically a two party nation and, you know, I have acquaintances who, you know, who are advocate third parties or, you know, independent efforts, you know, those are not ever going to be successful. So I'm a lifelong Republican and I continue to believe that if you are conservative and you want your voice to be heard in politics at the you know, local, state or federal level, you got to, you know, your team is the Republican Party and you got to get involved. And and so when we moved here, the first thing we did is, you know, try to introduce ourselves to the Republican Party and to get involved. You know, that, as I've mentioned, you know, at Avenue was not open. and you know, the establishment, the status quo basically mobilized to prevent my attempt to reactivate or to, you know, to re-energize that party. So then uh, an opportunity came up uh, last year to, um, or I guess 2022, to um, seek a seat on the state executive committee of the state Republican Party. And so the state Republican Party is governed by a 66-person committee, two representatives from each of Tennessee's 33 state Senate districts. And for whatever reason, and this shows, again, a sort of lack of initiative of the, you know, the local parties, nobody had pulled papers to run. So each district gets a male and a female representative, and the male representative was vacant. Nobody had pulled papers. And and so I decided to run as a write-in. And uh, there's a mechanism for how you qualify to have your name counted if it's written in the ballot. And you have to file certain pieces of paper with certain bodies within a certain time frame. And I did all of that. And then I waged a campaign, you know, however feeble, you know, using the media, social media, you know, using my Facebook page, 
Uh, I got endorsed by the Tennessee Conservative News, and and I ended up getting 302 write-in votes. So, you know, my name was not on the ballot. So for people to vote for me, they had to type in my name and, and spell it correctly. And 302 people did that, which was, you know, pretty remarkable. And the election results were certified by the Secretary of State. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have a seat on this state executive committee where then you could, you know, they really run the state party. They, they pick the executive director who runs things on a day-to-day basis, but you formulate policy, you make recommendations, you can revise the bylaws, et cetera. Well, I had annoyed enough people locally, including our county mayor, whose opponent I had endorsed in the Republican primary, that they staged a, um, a campaign to have my election nullified after it had been certified, you know, after the election was over, after the results had been certified by the Secretary of State. And they did it. They did it on a Zoom call. And, um, and I, I still scratch my head. You know, I have voted in every Republican primary since I was eligible in 1976. You know, I've held positions uh, within the Republican Party at the state and, and county level in California and Texas. So, but they, they kind of ended up, their attitude was, how dare you? Who do you think you are? you know, trying to do this as a write-in, even though there was nothing that says a write-in can't get elected to the state executive committee. Anyway, they nullified my election and appointed somebody that nobody's ever heard of to fill the position. And that's because they don't want the grassroots having a meaningful voice in the state party. That has to change. And I think it will change and it's in the process of changing, but it won't. It requires pressure. People need to speak up. They need to push people in that direction. They need to let people know that they're tired of all of this BS uh, behind the scenes, that if you are serious about supporting the principles embodied in the Republican Party platform, well, then start acting like it. And who is who is your infantry? It's the grassroots. So any organization that tries to neuter the grassroots is playing games because that's why political parties exist, is to channel the voice and the energy of grassroots who support your principles. And so I think, you know, this this thing that I've dealt with locally exists statewide. You know, Blount County is not unique in this regard, but people are finally beginning to pay attention. Tennessee has the potential to be one of the strongest Republican states in the country that, you know, we have a more conservative electorate than either Texas or Florida. So why isn't Tennessee this muscular example of conservative activism instead of being, you know, a mouthpiece for the Chamber of Commerce business interests. So anyway, people are waking up and we're moving in that direction. And so that's one of the reasons I feel good about being in, in Tennessee is that things are moving in the right direction. How did, how did they nullify your election? What's the story there? How was that done? Like what on a technicality or? Well, they, they never really, 
know, they never had to articulate a specific reason. So they had a variety of bogus reasons. But at the end of the day, how did they get away with it? Well, they got away with it because they can. And from a legal perspective, this SEC position, even though it was on the statewide ballot, and even though it was certified by the Secretary of State, is considered an internal political party matter. And so the state Supreme Court has issued decisions in the past saying, we're not going to interfere with what the Democratic Party wants to do with its internal mechanics, and we're not going to interfere with what the Republican Party does with its internal mechanics. Unfortunately, that gives these party apparatchiks enormous power. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that happened, and it was controversial, shortly before my nullification, the Tennessee Republican Party removed three candidates from the 5th Congressional District ballot in Middle Tennessee on the grounds that they weren't bona fide, including Morgan Ortegas, who was President Trump's media spokesperson at the State Department, whom he had endorsed for this 5th Congressional District. So the Tennessee Republican Party took Trump's endorsed candidate off the ballot because she wasn't a bona fide Republican, which is something that is a creature of the Tennessee Republican Party bylaws. You know, in Tennessee, and you know, Tennessee's not alone in this regard, but we have open primaries that, you know, I didn't have to declare my political affiliation when I registered to vote in Tennessee. So if you, there's no place you can go and say how many registered Republicans are there, how many registered Democrats are there in Tennessee, because nobody registers by political party. And so the only way you can tell who's Republican is by, well, do you vote in the Republican primary? You, you know, you don't keep track in the general election of party affiliation. So this has created opportunities where Democrats can cross over and vote in the Republican primary and kind of help the rhinos pick moderate candidates instead of conservative candidates. And it also creates this need for the Republican Party to make sure that some Democrat isn't running as a, as a, as a Republican. And so anyway, but it, it gives opportunity for mischief. And the, and the courts sort of say, well, you know, uh, we're going to let the Republican Party manage its own affairs. So this fell into the category of if they want to do this, they can, they can do it and nobody's going to interfere with them. So, but you can talk about it, and I have talked about it. You can complain about it. You can point out how nonsensical it is. And I think most people's reaction is why wouldn't they want you on the SEC? It's an vo unpaid volunteer position that nobody else wanted. You get 302 write in votes. They, they should be happy to have you. But instead, they treat you like you're an axe murderer. And how dare you have you know, a seat, you know, want a seat at the table? You know, we didn't anoint you. Therefore, you're not worthy. That's the mentality of the Tennessee Republican Party, and it has to has to change. It has to end. So, what do you think is the, um, let's say, the level of governance that has the most impact? I don't want to use that word again, but just bear with me. So, if you look at school board races, city council race, mayor county commissioners, state representatives, state senators, like where is the, um, 
what's the one that touches the average citizen's life the most? Well, <clears throat> the answer is local government makes the biggest difference on your day-to-day -day life. And unfortunately, local government is where most people pay the least amount of attention and 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 vote in a way that's oftentimes not well informed if they vote at all. And so the um, you know the national politics, you know they do what they're going to do in Washington, DC. But people, most voters, do vote every four years for president and they vote Republican. And that's true even here in East Tennessee. But the elections that really matter are not just the local elections, they're the local primary elections. Mm -hmm. For the most part, you cannot get elected to anything in Blount County, at least on a countywide basis, if you don't have an R after your name. We have 21 people on our county commission. They all claim to be R's. And, uh, but, and so whoever at the general election has the R after their name will win. And so it's kind of almost a meaningless vote because it's a foregone conclusion. So the real action is in the Republican primary. And that's where you need to have candidates who would present an alternative to this rhino status quo. But typically that's the role of a county Republican Party is to recruit candidates to provide a farm team for people who are wanting to run for office. And if you have neutered that type of grassroots organization, it becomes much more difficult. You know, it's just like market entry. You have a cartel that has created barriers to entry so that it's very hard to disrupt the status quo. So that's what's happening. And uh, so there is political pressure to close the primaries. and that pressure is only going to grow. I think Tennessee is waking up both the natives who live here and then as a result of this significant influx of refugees, I will call them rather than transplants, who tend to be the good type of transplants. You know, we're not the people from moving from California to Idaho that are ruining Boise. You know, we're not the people moving from California to Arizona ruining Arizona. People don't pick up and move thousands of miles to uh, a state that, you know, doesn't have beaches, you know, isn't noted for its, you know, culinary excellence and its hipster, uh, you know, cultural scene, that people move here because it's a, still a free state where it's normal and uh, hasn't been ruined by the left. And so I think, you know, we will, as a combination of the efforts being made by a number of different forces, you know, push Republican politics in Tennessee in the direction of meaningful grassroots participation rather than this sort of rhino establishment oriented, which is something, it's a tradition that's gone. It's nothing new. This goes all the way back to Howard Baker, uh, goes to Lamar Alexander. You have this whole tradition of, you know, Republican elected officials that have been very moderate, uh, whereas you have an electorate that is very conservative. And you look at our senators with Marsha Blackburn, very conservative, Bill Haggerty, very conservative. So we're beginning to catch on that this MAGA revolution needs to be brought top to bottom 
throughout the whole political system in Tennessee. And, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. People here are resistant to change, and that's a good thing. And that's why they're, they're not woke like they are in Nashville. And we like that. But eventually, I think they will get on board with this with this movement. I'm Got optimistic it. about it. Makes sense. So, yeah, so let's shift and talk about the 2024 election at the national level and also at the state level. And I, when you and I have talked in the past, I, <clears throat> the disconnect that I see is that you have a large percentage of the Republican base that believes that the 2020 election was stolen, for lack of a better way to put it. And you would in, implicitly then believe that it doesn't matter if you vote or not. And so in your how you see things as far as like, you know, being active, getting getting people involved in the primaries, getting candidates, all of that is built around the premise that the vote is sacrosanct and that it's believable. And so what do you see happening in 2024, both in terms of turnout, but also trying to circle that square, if that question makes sense? We haven't had election problems in Tennessee, you know, that we weren't not one of these states that were accused of stuffing the ballot boxes or doing the phony counts. So I don't think there's a widespread lack of, uh, of uh, faith in our election process. So I think that the biggest issue in 2024 is the volatility of Donald Trump and uh, the fact that the, the Democratic establishment hates him in a way that's almost scary. All of this lawfare, the, the bogus prosecutions, the lawsuits, uh, et cetera, trying to keep him off the ballot in the name of protecting democracy. It's, it's, it's kind of ludicrous. The good thing is that the more they go after Donald Trump, the more they cement the grassroots loyalty to him. And you can say, well, that's it's almost like a, a, a cult movement. Well, it's a cult movement that the left has kind of created because he's our figurehead and he's being persecuted in ways that overwhelming numbers of Republican voters find distasteful. Even if he's even if you weren't a Trumpster before, you feel like you got to support him now because if they can do this to a former president billionaire, one of the most well-known people in the world, they could crush you like a pistachio nut. And so you, you sort of have to get on board. And I think people are on board. And the question is whether these legal problems get significantly worse and he's convicted of a felony or whatever. And and with that late in the campaign, when it's too late to switch out candidates, would cause some significant, you know, portion of the of the voters, you know, suburban soccer moms or whatever to decide I can't I can't pull the lever for Donald Trump. And so Biden, who by far is the worst president, not just in my lifetime, but I think in the history of the republic, would somehow get reelected, even though he's been a miserable failure. And he's obviously in a state of serious mental decline. So I'm, um, you know, I would have preferred 
a Republican nominee other than Trump. Not that I have anything against Trump. I voted for him twice, given him quite a bit of money in the past. But I think he, you know, he does provoke a certain reaction in certain parts, uh, certain constituencies. And the left, you know, you think they're sticking pins in him like a voodoo doll. And at some point, uh, he's going to become a pincushion rather than a, a candidate. And so, but, you know, Ron DeSantis didn't catch on. Uh, you know, maybe he'll, you know, he, he's, he's a future prospect. If Joe Biden gets reelected for another four-year term, you know, then I begin to get pretty, pretty glum about, about the future. And maybe that'll get me off the hook. For my political activities, I can do what my wife wants and just uh, you know, book a bunch of you know long cruises and uh, and not pay attention to what's going on in the in the rest of the world. But uh, but anyway, I'm hopeful that uh, President Trump will win because uh, you know you know how could how could Biden beat him a second time uh, if if it's unfair and square? And I think that a lot of this mischief that was exposed in in 2020 won't happen again because people are going to be alert to it not that they won't try but i think you know you can get away with it once it's much harder to get away with it twice excellent okay and you do think that biden will be the uh the de- uh, the democratic uh, candidate well the only thing that could happen is that he declares that uh, he's really you know, mentally ill-equipped to do it and step down. And then Kamala Harris is going to be even easier to beat. Nobody takes her seriously. She's, she's literally a clown. And um, so it, it, they could try to pull some stunt at the convention and uh, put Gavin Newsom in there instead. But Gavin Newsom is not somebody that I don't think the, na- the nation has an appetite for. That would create enormous problems in the Democratic Party with the BIPOC constituencies who would consider Kamala Harris being denied her her due uh, as as VP. So I, I think they are stuck with them, you know, that they if they wanted somebody else, they should have let Robert F. Kennedy run in the Democratic primaries or but, you know, they've rigged it so that basically it has to be Biden. So I think they're stuck with them that, uh, you know, they've made their bed. They're just going to have to lie in it. Fascinating. Okay. We're in, we're in for a uh, turbulent, I think, next 10 months uh, up until <clears throat> up until early November. I think it's going to be – I already saw Trump talking about he would love to debate Biden and Biden responding <clears throat> with a sense that didn't make any sense about if I were him. And then he's yeah. like third person or something. I'm not getting the quote off the top of my head, but it was as if Biden was <clears> – <throat> flipping between the first and the third person talking about himself. And, uh, but yeah, I, um, I, and I don't think that, yeah, go ahead. And I don't think the media has the same ability to put its thumb on the scale that they did in 2020. You know, he tried to bring up the Hunter laptop, uh, at the debates and, and Biden was able to say, Oh, that's Russian misinformation. Well, that turned out to be a lie and everybody now knows that it's a lie. And so, you know, there's a lot of baggage that uh, didn't wasn't accounted for four years ago, but that there's no you can, there's no hiding it now. And plus, 
we've seen this horrendous inflation. We've seen this disastrous foreign policy mishaps that uh, I think the border is there a single human being in the United States that thinks it's good that we have 10 million unvetted illegal aliens roaming around the country, you know, in committing crimes, attacking policemen? No, that's we've got the mayors of sanctuary cities in Chicago and New York begging the administration to close the borders and saying this is going to destroy us. Well, isn't that what Trump was saying, that uncontrolled illegal immigration is going to destroy America? So you've got the Democrats now admitting that Trump's border policies were, you know, well designed and 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 uh, uh, and made sense. So I, you know, maybe I'm being naive, but I cannot conceive of a scenario where Trump could lose this. With this, I think many people regard this as the the nat- nation's future is resting on this election. We cannot survive another four years of this sort of crappy administration that, that, that Joe Biden has brought. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I think that the U S involvement in, uh, um, Ukraine has been personally just like an absolute boondoggle and a milk cow for the military industrial complex personally. And I think Trump would have kept us totally out of Ukraine and would have made it unnecessary because Putin wouldn't have been so adventurous. So that's part of it is that when the United States fails to become feared and respected in the world, bad things happen. And that, uh, uh, you know, so certainly all of this adventurism by Putin didn't happen when Donald Trump was president. And then uh, this worship of Zelensky and nobody's worrying about how much this aid has been embezzled or wasted. And uh, we have an obvious military stalemate been going on for a long time and people still talking about uh, victory. Well, you know, I think there needs to be a negotiated resolution and we needed to start you know, thinking like this six months ago, if not sooner. And you can pour an endless amount of money. Look at our whole history in the Middle East. You know, you can spend money over uh, over a decade and not make, not improve your result. So you need to be much more strategic about what you do and how you do it. It's it's ineptitude. It's ineptitude. Yeah, and it's and it's a neocon philosophy of we're going to serve as the world's police force and also this uh, good versus bad, very simplistic. Putin bad, Zelensky good, Putin aggressor, Ukraine is uh, defenseless and uh, seemingly, yeah, just doesn't have, there's no culpability on the part of uh, the Ukrainian leadership. It's like, if historically speaking, Russia has always wanted a warm water port. The Black Sea is incredibly important to them. Um, Sevastopol is part of their geopolitical calculations for the U.S. It's like, who cares? Like the Black Sea is nowhere even close to us. And so this, um, the, the Russians have made it abundantly clear that they want to keep access to the Black Sea. They were involved in the Crimea War. They were involved, they got into World War One explicitly to get access to a warm water port. That's why they they declared war on the Ottoman Empire. And in modern, you know, in in the modern history of Ukraine and Russia, they've They've repeatedly said, like, we're just not going to tolerate having a NATO ally on our uh, on our border here. And I think the U.S. invited the thing, honestly, like uh, and, 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 and from a place of hubris. That's what's frustrating about it. So, 
Yeah, and Zelensky is no Winston Churchill, and so the idea that we're treating him as this icon of democracy, where he has suspended elections, he has uh, prohibited certain religions from, uh, you know, holding uh, worship services, etc., that in some ways he's as bad a tyrant as as Putin is. The scariest thing of all as a result of this Iran-Ukraine uh, you know, is that you have the American left, which has become basically a cheering section for the Pentagon and the national security state. And yeah. who ever saw that coming? That's To me, that's just bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Because it's always I find it very weird that the. You know, growing up, that the, there was a vocal, there was a vocal group on the left in favor of free speech, and that group seems to have either disappeared or I don't know what's happened to them because they now um, are very comfortable having misinformation, disinformation shut down, or this sort of. Yeah, like very keen to have a um, like like tell you what's what, what, what like right think effectively like what's what's group like what's what's what what is permissible where is the Overton window of what you're allowed to talk about and uh, and 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 the, the free speech values on the left Bill Myers one of the guys on the left who does talk about this like where have all those people gone like what's happened to them Well, is it I guess what it proves to me is that the left was never really as principled and as honorable as they pretended to be. And what happened is once they completed their march through the institutions and they got control of the media and higher education and so forth, they and then, you know, for a, a period of time, they were in charge of the federal government and they decided we really like being in power. And if you're in power, then... You, you sort of view the national security state and the Pentagon as, well, you know, they're part of our pieces on the chessboard. You know, they, they're things that belong to us and they can be used to advance our interests. And so they've just kind of decided we're all in. And uh, so when you have now, it's pretty clear that you had the federal government manipulating or giving orders to big tech in terms of removing things from Twitter or from Facebook, uh, censoring. New York Post got deplatformed, the oldest newspaper in the United States, for trying to cover this real significant story, Hunter Biden's laptop, with all these incredibly incriminating images and messages on it. And the left is perfectly okay with that. And they, so they're advocating censorship. So this is like an Orwellian world where they have abandoned all the things that they used to supposedly believe in and are now defending censorship because they view it as important to maintain their power. And so what Lord Acton said, you know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The left has been if it wasn't corrupt all along, has become utterly corrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that there's this, there's this, what's the term for it? It's both a fascination for power, I would say megalomania, but also there is, um, um, there's just like this absolute quest for equality in all forms 
And it's not a naturally occurring equality. It's sort of this forced equality. And it's an it's equality of outcome as opposed to equality of opportunity. And they say, well, if equality of outcome means that we're all miserable, then so be it. Like there's like it's 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 totalitarian in nature when you dig into some of the stuff that they uh, uh, the policies that they put forward. So I I I find it super scary, honestly. Like sometimes when you dig it, uh, um, yeah, there that 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 equality of outcome as opposed to equality of opportunity, I think is a big distinction. And then also this one of like, just judge me based on my intentions and not the outcomes of my policies or my actions, right? Like, well, I intended this or I said the right things and actually the outcomes are horrific for those involved. Well, it's, well, he had good intentions or he had like, you know, he said that he, he, he was, he was wearing the right clothing. I don't know whether framing it correctly, but it uh, it just creates this, yeah, real lack of accountability bothers me. So well, just like an animal farm, some all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, and that was considered sort of a joke when Orwell, a dark joke, but that literally is their rallying cry. Yeah, and all of this yeah. stuff, diversity, equity, inclusion, it's all a mechanism to put hands in power in the hands of these woke bureaucrats is, is all part of expanding their empire and giving them even more control over, you know, higher education, like government bureaus, et cetera. Merit is lies at the heart of the American dream. And if you eliminate merit, you've, you've kind of eliminated the American dream. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Let's stop on that note. How do people find you online? What would you like them to do after listening to this? You want them to, what do you want them to do? Well, so my my blog, I call it a blog. It's really a collection of my writings, Misrule of Law. And everything I write gets posted on my blog, my website. And it's uh, you can find it on the internet. And if you want to sign up for, uh, you know, to receive emails when new content gets posted, you can do that. And, uh, and so I, you know, I have a following, uh, you know, I don't have a social media manager, so I don't keep track of the metrics, the, uh, but in any event, that's, uh, if people are interested, that's how they can find me. Amazing. Yeah. And you're an excellent writer and misrule of law is always interesting and entertaining. And I think the, I admire you for also citing sources and when you explain something saying like, here's why this is happening. Here's how you can check my assertions. Um, it's not, uh, it's not just Mark says it's like, this is Mark has done the research on it and it's much more akin to a legal brief than it is to an opinion piece in a lot of, in a lot of, t- in a lot of the instances of things I've read. So. Well, I spent 30 years writing legal briefs, so uh, it carries over. Thanks. Yeah, I can see that. Thanks for joining yeah. me. And all right. Thanks for having me. Okay. Talk to you later. Hi again, folks. If you enjoyed the show, I've got a favor to ask. Would you mind leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you've been listening to this podcast on? Every one of those helps. If you didn't like the show or if you've got feedback about it, let me know via the contact form on spreadgreatideas.org. I'd like to hear from you as far as what can be done to improve. Again, if you enjoyed the show, then please help out by spreading the word. If you didn't, let me know how to improve it. Thanks a lot for your attention, and I hope you'll check out the next one.